ironically, the model that Stewart began to establish in the film movie industry became very relevant for the Marine Corps and the U.S. Army in Afghanistan, Iraq. That became the model that helped us look at other territories globally where it was very challenging to have access to power. The World Health Organization states that one of the strongest indicators for global health is access to energy. The vision that I had was to reach the 1.3 billion people around the planet that are marginalized because they do not have access to power. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we are talking about energy storage using batteries, the different varieties available, and some of the controversies surrounding the types of batteries some in the industry have chosen to use. By now, we are all familiar with lithium-ion battery technology, and it has raced along. First proposed in the 1970s, they were first commercially available in 1991, and they changed everything, making electronics smaller, rechargeable, and capable of running much longer. However, the chemistry can sometimes lead to a phenomenon called thermal runaway, whereby the battery heats up uncontrollably. In the early days, manufacturers found a solution to this, what they call a battery management system, or circuits, which govern the chemical reactions within safe limits. Our guest today says that most consumers are under the impression that it's the lithium in these batteries that's causing these problems. But in fact, they say it's the cobalt in the chemistry. In fact, they themselves first started using lithium cobalt oxide. Tesla, for instance, currently uses lithium nickel cobalt aluminum oxide in their vehicles. My guest says that by switching to the non-cobalt lithium ferrous phosphate or lithium iron phosphate, they do not encounter thermal runaway events, do not need to add excessive battery management systems on top of the chemistry, and can avoid some of the more controversial issues associated with cobalt, which she can tell you about herself. I also wanted to add that this is the first time we've discussed battery storage since my Alevo episode last year. I interviewed them in April 2017. The episode aired the following July, and a month later, the company announced it was declaring bankruptcy. I wish I could give you some juicy scoop on what went down, but at the time I visited, Alevo seemed like a company on the rise. However, I will say this. You'll remember how huge I said their facility was, and when you consider that this small company of maybe 200 people was occupying a former cigarette factory that employed 6,000 at its height, you have to wonder if the scale was appropriate. I did not have permission to take photos, but I can tell you that that facility had huge open floors with absolutely nothing going on. If I had been in charge, I would have at least a 6,000 square foot warehouse on the edge of town, not purchased a 2 million plus square foot world-class facility that also required over a dozen golf course caliber landscapers. Our guest today says the best business plan is to bootstrap a growing operation and like their battery chemistry, which doesn't require the extra technology to control it, let it grow organically. Our guest today is Catherine Von Berg, president and CEO of Simplify Power, an energy storage company based in Ojai, California, just outside of Los Angeles. The company in its present form started in 2010, but had its roots before that in the movie business. Its chief technology officer and founder, Stuart Lennox, got his start developing battery technologies for the film industry. 
Oh yeah, you remember those suits that lit up in Tron Legacy? That was no computer effect, it was Stewart's Liberty Pack technology that allowed those actors to move around freely on the set. I really loved this movie when it came out. This is just an excuse to use the soundtrack. Here's one of the production designers talking about Stewart's technology. These costumes are special effects costumes, and what makes it special effects costumes is the fact that we are adding light to all the costumes. Yep, Stewart's technology was used on Avatar as well as TV productions like Mad Men, and Roger Deakins, the legendary cinematographer who finally won an Oscar last year for the Blade Runner sequel, used these packs on all of his movies like Skyfall, True Grit, and No Country for Old Men. Catherine joined Stewart around 2009 and simplified power has expanded beyond the silver screen to remote military operations in Iraq, microgrids in Africa, and even residential homes. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Katherine Von Berg. We're here with Captain Bonberg, president and CEO of Simplify Power. And Catherine, I'm a big movie buff, and I was surprised to see that the company, as it was originally known, had its roots in movie production. So what was so special about the Liberty Pack technology that's been used in movies like Avatar, Tron Legacy? What made that so special and so desirable for the movie industry? Well, our CTO, Stuart Lennox, was a special effects expert. And back in the day before special effects, meant digital. It really was about powering up all sorts of equipment on a set, whether it was in the Amazon forest or in downtown New York City. The challenge is around access to power, power that would provide everything from film cameras and lighting to, again, the special effects that were done on site. Back in the day, in the 90s and 2000s, the only real resource available for power on a set were diesel generators and or lead-acid batteries. Lead-acid batteries, as we all know, are large, cumbersome, and degrade over time whether you use them or not. And then, of course, the challenges with diesel generators from the noise, pollution. If you've ever seen movie sets where there are long lines that are providing power from the generators or the batteries. So Stuart decided that there had to be a better solution. In the early 2000s, the lithium-cobalt chemistry first became available. It was lightweight, the power density and the ability to store energy was exponentially greater than the lead acid. It allowed Stewart to begin to innovate power packs, both for onboard cameras and lighting, but also wearable technology. And that's where he got his start, creating solutions for various pain points in the film movie industry around access to power. And so he started with lithium cobalt, and then now it says you're using using lithium ferrous phosphate batteries. I think it's pretty easy to get confused because there's a lot of lithium this and lithium that. All of these are considered lithium ion. Is that right? Yes. And this is a real point of confusion in the industry. There are now many different chemistries that fall under that heading. Going back to Stewart's innovations, while lithium cobalt was a vast improvement on performance basis over the lead acid, the cobalt itself presented some real problems. 
problems. And that has to do with thermal runaway and temperature sensitivity. And that still exists in the market today. And we see evidence of thermal runaway from large utility scale battery installations to car fires, systems in homes, and all the overheating thermal mitigation and fires have to do with the cobalt, not the lithium. Unfortunately, in the industry, because the earliest lithium ion cells were indeed predicated on cobalt, there is a general misunderstanding that there's a choice and that you can choose a lithium ion chemistry, lithium ferrophosphate, that doesn't have the properties associated with thermal runaway that come from the cobalt. And that's unfortunate, but it looks to me like a lot of that's being addressed. Now, Tesla, we hear a lot about them. It says they use a lithium nickel cobalt aluminum oxide battery. How is that different from lithium ferrous phosphate? The challenges around cobalt, again, have to do with the instability and the fundamental fact that cobalt is toxic and hazardous. And when you're pushing electrons in and out of a battery during the charge and discharge, the cobalt creates a situation where the battery itself, regardless of ambient temperature, can begin to overheat and go into a state of thermal runaway. And the cobalt is responsible for that. As you begin to scale those smaller battery packs into larger packs for residential, commercial, and indeed utility scale, you're scaling up the risks, the hazards, and the toxicity of that cobalt in the lithium battery packs. So scaling up from our company's standpoint required that we scale up using something that fundamentally is not toxic, not hazardous, and indeed does not rely on a supply chain that in large part uses child labor, warlord labor, and rare earth element that is being considered a conflict mineral. How can you talk about safety if fundamentally you're using something again that's toxic and unstable? We are chemistry agnostic. We're always engaged in looking at other chemistries. Our proprietary architecture, our manufacturing techniques will be able to leverage newer innovations that continue to evolve around the lithium without using something that is toxic or unstable. You said in some of these cases, the batteries are using minerals that are conflict or use child labor. Are you saying that Tesla or other companies are actively doing that now? I just want to be clear on that. Yes, it's in the press. And basically, without calling out specific companies, I can say yes, that companies that are using cobalt as one of the elements in the batteries, they are pulling from a supply chain that has at its origins these issues around being a conflict mineral because of child labor, warlord labor. So anybody that is using the cobalt is participating in that supply chain. Oh my. The Washington Post, New York Times, some of the tier one media outlets have had articles on this. Some of this is because we're still seeing effects of thermal runaway in phones and laptops. That's a direct experience that many consumers have with thermal runaway as they charge their phone, it heats up. And what happens for companies is that much of the IP dedicated to creating a performance profile, much of the IP goes into approaches to mitigating that thermal runaway. 
I don't want to keep saying Tesla, but they are kind of the 800-pound gorilla, and you do batteries, they do batteries. Other than the Cobalt, what do you think sets you apart from a company like that in this space? Mm -hmm. When I met our CTO, Stuart Lennox, essentially in 2009, and looking at the mobile portable systems he had developed and looking at that line of products, the vision that I had was to start scaling that up to reach the 1.3 billion people around the planet that are marginalized because they do not have access to power. That's one of the differentiators for us above and beyond our technology, a vision to bring access to power to communities that globally would otherwise and still are reliant on diesel, lead acid or cumbersome batteries, kerosene for basic needs like lighting. What the LFP afforded us scaling up these smaller packs was to bring reliable sources of storage to these communities such that they could maximize renewables, but also limit the amount of diesel they were using or replace it altogether. We were able to innovate an architecture and a battery that could withstand very challenging hot climates and challenging use cases. In the early days, the Department of Defense became very interested in our storage solutions because of the ability to withstand very hot temperatures. They gave us an opportunity to prove out our technology for years of deployments on forward operating bases. Ironically, the model that Stewart began to establish in the film movie industry became very relevant for the Marine Corps and the U.S. Army in Afghanistan and Iraq. It's really interesting that you said what a difference between a movie set and a military base in Iraq, but you know, they're both remote locations that need a lot of power, right? There's really not that much difference at the end. Exactly. And if you look across industries or across territories, many of the principles apply. Yeah. You've got some great examples about how you've been able to bring, and I want to emphasize this reliable power to these areas using your batteries. These are typically a combination of solar and batteries, right? Any other combinations that have worked real well? The solar plus batteries, but very often our batteries coupled just with generators. If you have batteries that can perform bare minimum two-hour charge, two-hour discharge, suddenly the generators are only used to charge up a bank of batteries and then shut off. And so we were able to establish between 50 to 80% diesel offset, and that became a model to take to other parts of the world where the access to power in large part means reliable on diesel and those generators. Taking that model, then adding solar and wind and other types of energy sources so that it became a real dynamic platform that could incorporate any type of power generation asset and leverage that with a simplified storage solution. For us, it's always been about that, not requiring or making any type of asset obsolete, but optimizing it. Real good point. A lot of different technologies can be inputs into what you bring to the table. Yes. Catherine, you made a presentation last year at Google discussing the true cost of energy and energy storage. Tell us about the points you made at that event. If we in the industry, that means everybody that's involved in energy. If we really looked at the true cost of energy versus what the consumer pays at the gas pump or at the wall socket, might they not make different purchasing decisions? And some of those hidden costs that consumers are not aware of have to do with subsidies. Consumers, what they don't realize is they're paying a lower price up front, but they're paying dearly on the back end. 
through all those tax dollars that feed into subsidies. Energy storage stands to leverage and optimize whatever the generation asset is. So your point is basically like, hey, end all the subsidies, level the playing field out, see what the real costs are. Yes. Catherine, last year I interviewed Alevo and they were an industrial scale battery storage company here in Charlotte. And their model was basically to stage these units at substations. They announced bankruptcy about a month after my episode aired. So you guys do batteries too. You're actually doing some very large projects. What do you think the lessons are to be learned with what happened to that company? I'm sure you have to be familiar with them and what they went through. Yeah, it's. I'm sure you can imagine. It's never something that I want to take part in is talking about other companies that are in the industry only because I'm an outsider. I can just comment that our approach to our technology, the R&D, the innovation and growing the company has been different than others in the industry. There have been a lot of bankruptcies. We've chosen to bootstrap. The model we took from the beginning when we founded was to build the company based on the efficacy of the technology being established through real world deployments. We've been doubling year over year. We became profitable by 2012. When you think about that in the context of the industry, that's somewhat unprecedented. We have not taken VC money. We don't beta test on customers. And certainly the third party testing we've had to go through with the Department of Defense in proving out our performance profiles, our warranties. I know bootstrapping is pretty tough. It's made us pretty scrappy and highly efficient in terms of how we look at our own resources and how we continue to innovate and build our technology and IP, but also how we approach the market on a global scale. And I think the bigger question may be when it comes to that particular company and what they were doing, do you have any thoughts on maybe what the appropriate business model for grid scale storage would be? I think that the easiest answer is basically you build the battery if it's cost plus, or is it some sort of revenue sharing model? I know you're kind of doing something like that. What do you think is the appropriate business model for grid scale storage? There are so many different models, meaning who owns the asset and who structures the financing. All of that comes into play. I think with utility scale, some of the challenges are really just having to work with utilities and developing a different economic model that is different from how utilities approach large-scale infrastructure projects currently. For an example, we have a project in New Zealand where the utility went through the economic modeling such that if they had to replace a certain number of poles and wires because of sort of the fringe of the grid, it was more cost-effective to cut the wires and to drop in a microgrid with different generation assets, certainly solar, along with our batteries in large boxes providing off-grid power now. In this model, the utility owns the assets and they have worked out a rate structure such that the utility wins and the end user wins. We talked about lithium at the very beginning and I've covered this issue in previous episodes, especially with electric car topics, is that the price of lithium has risen quite a bit over the last few years. I wouldn't say we haven't even begun to see full-scale battery deployment when it comes to cars and microgrids. What do you think? Are we in danger of possibly seeing a point where lithium prices make this progress prohibitive, or maybe is there another way around this? Because lithium prices have started to go up a little bit. For us, our prices have reduced by over 50% since we found in 2010. And 
the trend for lower and lower prices, at least for the lithium iron phosphate, continues to go down. Lithium is one of the most ubiquitous elements on Earth. It's also environmentally benign. Lithium rises up in salt flats, if you will. The mining techniques are not invasive, unlike cobalt. One of the reasons that children are using cobalt mining is because it requires tunneling deep into the earth and being able to drop children in these dark holes. It's terrible. It's deleterious, obviously, to anybody involved in the cobalt mining. For us as a company, how can you talk about energy security and resilience if what you're using is a fundamentally toxic and hazardous chemistry and a chemistry that then requires all sorts of mitigation techniques to safeguard against the thermal runaway. Some companies that use lithium cobalt are buying futures in cobalt to safeguard against that. But at the end of the day, if we're talking about renewable energy, sustainable development, how can you use something that's fundamentally toxic, hazardous, and deleterious in terms of the overall supply chain? And this is what I love is this idea of taking a great technology and, and taking away the main negatives that would be associated with it. In the case of lithium ion, the stories about the heat, and as you were talking about the child labor, my goodness, and focusing on ways to take it and make it a more ideal technology. And I think that is a truly progressive energy policy, don't you think? Well, yes, we certainly ascribe to that. And the whole idea behind social equity and environmental principles that are tied into access to energy. The World Health Organization states that one of the strongest indicators for global health is access to energy. Uh, past Secretary General furthered that by saying it's actually access to renewable energy that creates this kind of golden thread between social equity, environmental sustainability, and economic prosperity. For us as a company, and we look where markets are expanding, we're always looking at who are the people that will be using this technology and how do we really create energy security and resilience. And the one last comment I'll make that energy storage, the chemistry, the form factor, everything matters when you're talking about the ROI, meaning if you have a battery that offers 10,000 cycles and deep depth of discharge and rapid charge and discharge rates, and that battery can be installed without thermal mitigation or cooling all the costs for ancillary equipment at the point of installation that are there just to protect the life of the battery. That erodes the ROI. The company name Simplify Power truly is about that proposition, simplifying people's access to power. That's great. And Catherine, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy topics, starting with natural gas. Without subsidies, would that be cost effective? Crude oil. Needs to be optimized with other assets. Nuclear. Ooh, toxic waste. <laughs> Coal. Old technology that can be easily replaced. Wind. Phenomenal technology for areas that have that as a very strong resource. Solar. Critical to Bi the planet. Biofuels. Innovative and critical. Hydroelectric. Also critical and part of the whole solution. Geothermal. Also part of the solution now and into the future. Electric vehicles. 
important and critical as long as the charging for electric vehicles is coming from renewables and not pulling off traditional top-down fossil fuel infrastructure. I'm going to throw you guys in there. Energy storage. Again, critical to optimizing whatever generation asset that is. Optimizing the grid, optimizing diesel, natural gas, biofuel, solar. Storage has a critical role in any use case. Energy efficiency. Also really critical and overusing that word, but energy efficiency matters because if you don't create efficiencies, you're not optimizing the use of resources in creating the solution. And then finally, nuclear fusion. Questionable. <laughs> Still to be... <laughs> Out, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, Catherine Von Berg, Simplify Power, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. This has been a fun discussion. You bet. That was Catherine Von Berg, president and CEO of Simplify Power, a California-based energy storage company. Catherine says thanks to their battery's design and their lack of a heat signature, the military was able to conduct stealth operations when in the past their options for batteries would not allow them to do so. And Simplify says they are now getting into high-voltage operations, which is something I'm a big fan of. Their first containerized unit will be installed for a microgrid in Sonoma in August. Special thanks to Catherine for her time and Heather Brunner for helping to set this up. And big thanks to Lisa DeMarco, Simplify's Marketing and Communications Manager, for her help. We were connected on LinkedIn and I reached out to see what she was working on. And that's how shows like this happen. You can check out pics featuring this week's guest and more at Host Energy on Instagram and online at energy-cast.com. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. Be sure to rate us with a good review on iTunes and reach out if you have any great ideas for the show. Well, that wraps up episode 39. Be sure to join us next week when we explore the untapped potential of a technology that's been around since medieval times. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.